0: hello everyone and welcome to classic gaming today where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present i am your host tony and today we're going to look at secret of evermore an action role-playing game or rpg developed and published by squaresoft and released for the super nintendo entertainment system in late 1995. we're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes but first as is usual just a little bit of housekeeping up front this is episode number 39. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Give me some advice, comments, feedback, suggestions about future episodes, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic T. So feel free to reach out. Drop me a line. I am definitely interested in having the discussion. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question. Where does it sit in the historical context of computer and video gaming? How was it made? Why was it made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numeric ranking or give a bunch of stars to different games. But we do look at each game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? Sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign every single game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic, highly recommended. You should go out and play it today. You owe it to yourself to play and experience these games. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them. They are not quite Pantheon level, but you should probably enjoy them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you like the genre in which the game exists. Definitely go for it. I still highly recommend them. Still really worthwhile experiences. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. These are where we start getting into the games where I can't really recommend them to the general population. You may still have fun with them if you particularly enjoy the genre in which they live, but for the most part and for the majority of the population, these games may not necessarily be worth your time. They've either aged a little bit more poorly or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Secret of Evermore. Secret of Evermore is an action role-playing game developed and published by Square and released for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in late 1995. Now before we can talk about Secret of Evermore, we have to go back to the formation of Square, the company responsible for many of the most beloved RPGs of all time. By the time Secret of Evermore was released in 1995, Square had already been established as one of the leading console RPG developers in the industry, being most prominently known for the creation of the Final Fantasy series of games. Back in 1987, though, the company was just several years old and was facing a bit of a financial crisis. Square was originally founded in 1983 as an offshoot of a Japanese power company, with a focus on developing computer software rather than managing power grids. The leader of the company, Masafumi Miyamoto, further refined the company's focus and decided that rather than simply working on computer software, the team would focus on the development of software for the video game market, driven primarily by the fact that the video game industry had been booming up to that point, though interestingly, it would crash shortly after the founding of the company. Despite that setback. Square as a company began developing games, focusing first on the Japanese computer market with various action titles released for the NEC PC-8801, which is sometimes referred to as the PC-88. That was one of the major Japanese computer models of the time. And Square developed games almost exclusively for a variety of computer platforms until around 1985, when they entered into a deal with video game console manufacturer Nintendo to develop games for their recently released 8-bit Famicom system. The thought there was the computer market, while interesting and dynamic, wasn't really stable, at least insofar as there were always changes being made to the various hardware, software, and peripherals that users would have access to. For a small company like Square, keeping up with that pace of change was proving to be challenging, so they figured moving to the home console market with hardware that is effectively unchanging for a given system would provide a degree of stability that their prior efforts had been lacking. While that assertion would be proven accurate, and Square did release a number of titles in 1985 and 1986 for the Famicom, those titles ended up only having moderate success, eventually causing Square to begin struggling financially. In fact, some sources state that the situation was so grim that if Square couldn't figure out a way to release a true hit game, they might have to go out of business. To hopefully avoid that potential outcome, company founder Miyamoto called an emergency meeting with Square's executive leadership team, which consisted of four directors across the company. Those individuals were to come forward with various game proposals that the rest of the team would vote on, with the hope that a sort of democratized collaboration session would result in a more successful venture than their previous efforts had resulted in. The end result of that summit would be the creation of Final Fantasy, based on a proposal by Hironobu Sakaguchi to create a console RPG similar to Dragon Quest, which had been a title released by rival company Enix earlier in 1986. Final Fantasy would release in 1987 and would become the role-playing series that not only saved Square's company but also launched Square as a major force in the video game industry. Final Fantasy itself would spawn a number of sequels, spin-offs, movies, musical concerts, and various other cross-media promotions while also allowing the team to begin focusing and developing other titles that might also appeal to the gaming community. While Final Fantasy would be the game that saved Square, that's not to say that there weren't other development efforts underway at the company. One of those titles was a game entitled and Densetsu, proposed by game designer Koichi Ishii as an absolutely massive, at least for the time, title involving both action and role-playing elements for the Famicom Disk System. With initial planning beginning in 1987, around the same time Final Fantasy was being developed, the thought was that this title could potentially be yet another answer to the financial hardships that Square had been facing, and the company was so confident that the title would be successful that pre-orders for the title opened up before a single piece of code had been written for the game. Unfortunately, that title proved to be just a bit too ambitious for the time, and the company decided to cancel the title and refund all pre-orders, instead directing gamers to buy Final Fantasy instead. With his idea shelved, Koichi Ishii went off to work on the Final Fantasy series, and the fact is, Square as a company would pretty much focus the majority of their efforts on Final Fantasy in the years that would follow, with Final Fantasy II releasing in 1988 and Final Fantasy 3 coming out a couple years later in 1990 that series was quickly shaping up to be an incredibly successful venture for the company, and in early 1991, talks were underway to determine how to expand its reach even further beyond what had become the traditional definition of a console RPG. We've talked about console RPGs, and more specifically, Japanese role-playing games, or JRPGs, before, but just to provide a bit of a refresher, when we talk about JRPGs, we're talking about games that typically have turn-based combat with a number of different weapons, armor pieces, and spells that can be acquired over the course of playing the game. Oftentimes, JRPGs would have a significant focus on the narrative, with many JRPGs spanning tens of hours of content between the various enemy and boss encounters players would have to overcome, as well as the overall storyline that players would experience through exploring the game's world and interacting with various characters and companions. Square, along with Enix, were pretty much the companies that defined the genre, with Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest both serving as the framework that most other console JRPGs would utilize for the overall structure of their games. But Square believed that the Final Fantasy brand could exist beyond these traditional JRPG constructs, and in 1991, the company was in the process of launching a spin-off title that would combine some aspects of the RPG genre while at the same time infusing action-based gameplay similar to what you might see in the Legend of Zelda series. This title, which was directed by Koichi Ishii, would effectively be the game he originally wanted to create back in 1987. In that game, you would still gain experience points and level up your character similar to a traditional JRPG, but the combat would be entirely revamped, with a focus on real-time fights that took place in the game world. Rather than selecting your attacks from a menu-driven system, as was typical at the time, you'd simply need to walk up to an enemy and swing your sword to attack, with your level and equipment quality dictating whether you would score a hit or not. And, perhaps most interestingly, combat would have a degree of strategy included. Rather than promoting pure hack-and-slash gameplay where you mash your attack button until enemies were defeated, this game would introduce a power bar that would slowly refill over time. The higher that bar, the stronger your attack, and while you could simply swing away and defeat enemies by virtue of the sheer quantity of lower-powered attacks you could chain together, if you had a bit of patience and let the power bar fill up, you'd be able to unleash even stronger attacks and special abilities, which could make even shorter work of the enemies in a given area. Ishi's game would be released in 1991 for the Nintendo Game Boy under the title Seiken Densetsu. Final Fantasy Gaiden, with the word Gaiden in Japanese literally meaning side story. Despite being a simple side story in the Final Fantasy series, gamers and critics loved the title, with many praising the game's gameplay and unique take on the traditional JRPG formula, with some even saying that the game's puzzles stood toe-to-toe with The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, which was a recently released Game Boy iteration of the Legend of Zelda series. Saiken Densetsu would end up selling pretty well, with 700,000 copies purchased by gamers worldwide. It didn't quite hit Final Fantasy levels of sales, but it was still pretty darn good for what amounted to her spin-off. Both Square and Koichi Ishii delivered a hit. The only question was, well, what to do now? Sure, they could create another Saiken Densetsu title as a Final Fantasy spin-off, but was that really the best approach? Wasn't the game distinct enough from Final Fantasy, and successful enough as a standalone experience, to warrant something more? turns out, the answer to those questions was a resounding yes, and Seiken Densetsu would be spun off as its own game series separate from Final Fantasy. With Koichi Ishii assigned as the director of this new series he turned his attention to how to recapture the success of his initial Game Boy title, albeit with the much more powerful Super Nintendo Entertainment System providing the hardware muscle for his next action RPG hybrid experience. Like we talked about, despite being tied in as a Final Fantasy side story, Seiken Densetsu was never intended to be part of the Final Fantasy franchise. It was always envisioned as a standalone series. While Ishii couldn't get the original iteration of his idea to market without hitching it to the Final Fantasy bandwagon, Now, he was able to strike out and create a game that was truly his own, and that provided Ishii with a sense of creative freedom that he hadn't otherwise enjoyed in his career to date. Previously, he had pretty much only worked on the Final Fantasy series, and by extension, the Seiken Densetsu Final Fantasy spinoff. Now was his chance to bring his unique perspectives to the masses, and that's exactly what he did when he created Seiken Densetsu 2, which would later be known as Secret of Mana. Released in 1993 for the Super Famicom and Super NES, Secret of Mana was an incredibly popular and much-loved action RPG title that served as a direct sequel to Ishii's prior work, though many innovations and improvements beyond that original title were added for the sequel. Other than improved graphics and sound, which you would expect given the fact that it was a Super Nintendo title, the action-based gameplay was refined, with the weapon power meter gauge becoming much more dynamic and quick. Rather than having its fill rate dependent on a player's level, it would now fill much more quickly, allowing for more immediate high-powered attacks to be executed by the player. The companion system would also be revamped. In the original Seiken Densetsu, you would occasionally have a computer-controlled companion join your party and assist you in your adventure, but their help was always temporary, and you couldn't equip any items on those characters. In Secret of Mana, Your companions were persistent and stuck with you throughout your adventure with the player having the ability to switch control to any of the three characters at any point while the computer would gain control of whichever two characters you were not controlling unless of course you had a couple of buddies you planned to play the game with because secret of mana actually included up to three player cooperative gameplay assuming you owned a multi-top which was a super nintendo peripheral that allowed up to five controllers to be hooked up to a single super nes console The idea of a cooperative RPG experience on a console was absolutely unheard of at the time, and I honestly don't know of any other similar games that had been released up to that point. If there were, please let me know, but I can't think of any. The overall interface for interacting with the game world would also receive an upgrade, not just over the original Seiken Densetsu, but also in relation to common console RPG conventions of the time. In most RPGs, taking an action, whether that's using an item, equipping a weapon, or armor piece, or casting a spell, or even managing your party members, requires navigating a series of menus, with certain options leading to even more nested menus until finally you navigate to the piece of the interface that allows you to take the action you intended to take. This was a pretty common staple of a lot of RPGs of the time, but it can also take some getting used to if you're not familiar with how to navigate that menu kind of structure. Secret of Mana attempted to improve that experience and streamline the act of taking actions with a new way of interacting with the game called the Ring Interface, where rather than navigate a series of nested text menu options in a separate screen, you could at any time bring up a ring over your character that represented the various actions you could take. Navigating the various options involved simply circling around the ring or pressing up and down on your control pad to switch to different rings, all while you remained in the game world, albeit paused. It was designed to make these typically text-based interactions much more dynamic, as well as improve the speed of the overall experience, which, given its focus as an action RPG as opposed to a traditional turn-based affair, fit right in line with the gameplay loop of the rest of the title. Those weren't even all the innovations planned for the title, because Secret of Mana was originally being developed as a game for the Super Nintendo CD-ROM add-on peripheral that Sony and Nintendo had been working on. The original vision for the game was nearly double in size and included multiple story paths and endings, but with the decision to not make a CD-ROM peripheral, those plans had to be altered to fit within the constraints of a typical Super Nintendo cartridge. Interestingly, many of the concepts and mechanics that were cut from Secret of Mana ended up making their way to another Square RPG, Chrono Trigger, and if you want to learn more about the whole Sony-Nintendo CD-ROM failure, or Chrono Trigger itself... I would encourage you to check out our episodes on Hotel Mario and Chrono Trigger respectively, as we dive pretty deep into both of those topics. Anyway, despite the fact that the final version of Secret of Mana was pretty significantly shrunk from Ishii's original vision, upon the game's release, it would receive widespread acclaim across both the critical and gaming community, with many players believing the title was an instant classic, and critics praising the gameplay innovations, graphics, music, and overall quality of the title. It sold out its initial production run in just a couple days, and shortly after release, gamers around the world were clamoring for a sequel. They wanted more Secret of Mana. At this point, it probably makes sense to take a step back and talk about the way Square and other companies go through the process of releasing a game to the worldwide market, because it's not just a simple matter of translate a bunch of text and ship those translated games out. I mean, sometimes companies do that, but that kind of surface-level approach doesn't really work when you're talking about the complex narratives that are typically included in a traditional console RPG. No, the process of localizing these titles for worldwide distribution is oftentimes much more complex. Square, as we've discussed, is a Japanese game development company, and many of their titles have been designed and developed by Japanese game developers. In many of those titles... The individuals creating the title will include influences from their personal experiences, which in this case would be Japanese culture. Things like folklore, common phrases and expressions, popular topics or figures in the public spotlight, even what's considered funny. All kinds of things make up a country's culture, and oftentimes those cultural influences would make their way into the games a given development company would create. If a company's goal was to simply release a title in their home geographic market, that'd be fine, but Square's releases were always intended to be enjoyed by gamers around the world. So, in order to localize a game for, say, a North American release, teams of people would have to go through the game text and not only translate it from a pure lexical perspective, but might also need to revise various cultural references to make more sense for the target audience. Without adding that extra coat of polish, a game could release and simply not resonate with various populations around the world, which could in turn lead to lower sales. Square was always cognizant of the differences between the Japanese and American gaming populations, and the company took efforts to localize their games for whatever market they were releasing in. Going even further, Square believed that there were some core differences between the two countries. There was a general perception that Japanese gamers preferred more in-depth gameplay and more complex and difficult mechanics than their American counterparts. Americans, meanwhile, enjoyed more fast-paced action and wanted their game experiences to be simpler affairs where they had more direct control over the action. Whether those perceptions were accurate or not, the fact remained that Square wanted to create a quality experience for whomever they were designing a game for, even going so far as releasing a couple titles that were designed explicitly for American audiences as opposed to their traditional approach of releasing a game for the Japanese market and then localizing for other geographic areas. One of those titles, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, was actually renamed in Japan as Final Fantasy USA, with Mystic Quest becoming a subtitle. Square wanted their Japanese consumers to know, this was a game designed for the American market. And that's not to say that gamers in America didn't enjoy the distinctly Japanese flavor that many Square RPGs were designed with. In fact, I would argue that Square attained a level of popularity and acclaim in North America that was at least in part because it was different and distinct than what most Americans were used to. Square's games offered a glimpse into a culture that not many Americans had direct exposure to, and it was a breath of fresh air. As you might imagine, Americans, as well as others around the world, always had high anticipation for future Square releases, and with news that A Secret of Mana sequel was in development, there was palpable excitement around what many assumed would be yet another Square masterpiece. While Koichi Ishii and the team were hard at work on Seiken Densetsu 3, the game that would become the sequel to Secret of Mana, Square was in the process of expanding its company footprint across the world. We just talked about prior efforts made by Square to both localize and design games for various audiences, and one of the company's biggest groups of consumers outside of Japan was North America. In the past, any Square titles released for the North American market had still been designed and developed by the Japanese team. However, in 1994... Square decided that they wanted to expand, officially, into North America, and they opened up a branch of their company in Redmond, Washington, naming the new entity Squaresoft. Squaresoft, unlike parent company Square, was to focus on creating titles that had a decidedly American flair, meaning, rather than taking Japanese-developed titles and localizing them for the American market, Squaresoft would develop games from a more American perspective, the thought being that this would allow even greater sales in the region. While Square titles were popular all over the world, the majority of their sales had historically come from the Japanese markets, and despite the acclaim that their titles typically received, they felt that there was an opportunity to improve their presence overseas. Squaresoft was going to be their first step in making that goal a reality. With the American Squaresoft founded, Discussions began on what their first title should be, and even though the company was going to be designing made-for-America kinds of experiences, they still took primary direction from their parent company, with the initial concept for the game coming directly from Square's headquarters in Japan. They suggested that Squaresoft's first title should be a Western RPG, meaning an RPG designed for the West, or North America, and that it should feature a boy and his dog companion traveling through a variety of lands based on cheesy B-movie kinds of references. Originally entitled Vex and the Mesmers, the game would feature a group of magic users who, through their dreams, could create brand new realities. One day, a member of their group, Vex, begins corrupting these dream worlds, and it becomes the responsibility of the player to explore the various dreamscapes, remove Vex's corruption, and ultimately defeat Vex once and for all. While the team thought the concept sounded great, The individual elements of the game just were not coming together, and eventually, while the game was still early in development, the team decided that they needed to go back to the drawing board. They ended up scrapping the early work on the title, but they did take some of the themes and general concepts to reuse in their next iteration of the game. While brainstorming that next version, associate producer George Sinfield decided to hold a contest whereby other members of the team could submit their ideas for what to name the new game, with Jeremy Soule, the game's composer, eventually winning the contest. That submission would mark the birth of the team's new game, Evermore. With a new title in place, work on Evermore began in earnest. The direction coming from Square in Japan was that they wanted the title to feel similar to Secret of Mana, thinking that the more action-oriented gameplay would appeal to the North American market more than Square's traditional turn-based RPG mechanics. So, the team set off to create their title using Secret of Mana as a foundation— with lead programmer Brian Fedrau beginning to work on the underlying gameplay systems that would form the framework for the new game. Fedrow had been a long-time gamer, and he was a huge fan of Secret of Mana, believing that its gameplay was superior to other Square RPGs like the Final Fantasy series, so tasking him with creating a game in a similar style seemed like a perfect fit. There was only one issue. As Fedrau and the team began trying to iterate on the Secret of Mana formula, it became clear that the original title was designed so well that there wasn't much room to evolve the core gameplay. The original goal was to make Evermore as though it was inspired by Secret of Mana, stylistically similar, but with its own unique interface and gameplay mechanics. Over the course of the title's development, what ended up happening is that Evermore would inherit directly many of the same exact mechanics and interface elements from Secret of Mana, effectively getting the same fighting system, ring-based menu interface, weapon leveling process, and various other core mechanics that made the game feel almost like a sequel to Secret of Mana using the same engine as the title. Now that's not to say that the team didn't include any original gameplay elements, In fact, the team took a pretty significant departure from Secret of Mana with the creation of the game's alchemy system, which was effectively the way magic spells could be used in the game. Rather than having your magic usage based on the concept of traditional magic points, the alchemy system would instead use various ingredients found and purchased throughout the game's world, with recipes able to be learned from characters, treasure chests, or sometimes simply exploring the environment. We're going to talk more about my thoughts on the alchemy system in a little bit, but the fact is it was definitely a different kind of magic mechanic than what had come before to the team's credit the reality of the situation is that while evermore would inherit a large number of secret of Madness gameplay mechanics it was not in fact using the same engine fedrao and the team ended up recreating all of those game elements themselves from scratch without the use of any pre-existing code engines or assets In fact, FedRow even created a brand new toolset to assist designers in the creation of the game. Named SAGE, which stood for Square's Amazing Graphical Editor, designers and artists could make changes and see their work directly in the game without needing a separate programmer to intervene, which drove to streamline the overall creation of the title. With the core gameplay mechanics coming into focus, attention turned once again to the game's story, which preserved the original concept of a boy and his dog being the main characters of the game. But instead of traversing a bunch of corrupt dream worlds, the game would involve being transported to an alternate dimension called Evermore, whereby the various lands of the world were created based on the thoughts of its inhabitants. These lands would similarly have a corrupting influence begin to invade them, and it would once again be the player's job to rid the world of this corruption. The team interspersed a number of American-style pop culture references throughout the experience, and designed the humor in the game to appeal to a decidedly American audience. The original concept of exploring a bunch of lands based on cheesy B-movies would evolve into a more passive kind of reference, where the player's character would instead be a fan of those kinds of films and would, at various points throughout the story, compare his current predicament to various fictional situations encountered in those movies. The task of creating the music for the title would fall to Jeremy Soule, who is one of the more well-known composers for computer and video game music, with perhaps his biggest claim to fame being his work on The Elder Scrolls' Skyrim. Back in the early 90s, though, Soul was simply a high school student with a love of video games and a desire to make music. While he enjoyed the act of playing games, he believed most titles were lacking in the musical department, with not enough drama or intensity. He believed he could do better, so he sent in a demo tape to Squaresoft, which apparently was good enough to be hired and assigned to work on Evermore. This would be the first video game Soul composed for, and it would include both music and ambient sounds designed to enhance immersion as players explored various environments. It was a definite departure from the traditional JRPG style that Square had been known for, but given the goal of creating a more Western-influenced game, it seemed like Soul's divergent style would fit well. Eventually, all of the various elements of the title would begin coming together, with the game rapidly approaching its release date. As is typically the case, when a game approaches its release date, marketing goes into full swing, with various advertisements, commercials, and other promotional materials being developed to help sell the upcoming title. When the marketing department took a look at Evermore, they saw a refined console RPG experience that bore a striking resemblance to Secret of Mana, which, like we've talked about, was by design. Thinking that a closer association with that title might drive additional sales, the marketing department decided to rename the game to secret of evermore which is how the game would eventually be known when it finally released to the gaming world in late 1995. upon its release secret of evermore would receive a positive critical response with many media outlets praising the game's graphics music and secret of mana-esque gameplay players however were just a little confused and in some cases even angry now as we discussed secret of mana was a much beloved release And the gaming community at large knew that a sequel was in development. Many gamers were anxiously awaiting that sequel, so when the similarly titled and similarly styled Secret of Evermore was released, a lot of people expected that this would be Secret of Mana 2. When they discovered that the game wasn't, in fact, part of the Mana series, there was a decidedly negative sentiment that a good portion of the gaming community began to foster. The thought was Secret of Evermore was a pale imitation to what they believed Secret of Manitou would be, and they blamed Evermore as the reason why Manitou wouldn't be released in North America. In reality, the development of Secret of Evermore had absolutely no impact on Secret of 2 remaining unreleased in North America. The team behind Evermore was established solely for the purpose of creating that title. And the true reason as to why Secret of 2 never made it to North America, at least back in the 90s, is that the game contained a number of software bugs that made localization a costly and difficult challenge. So, Square decided to keep Secret of Mana 2 a Japanese exclusive, assuming that North American players would be content with Secret of Evermore. Regardless, the fact remains that gamers did not welcome Secret of Evermore with open arms at the time of its release, and it wouldn't be until years later that retrospective analysis would bring the game back into the spotlight, so much so that today, many people consider Secret of Evermore to be one of those hidden gems that, while not celebrated broadly, should still be experienced at some point in everyone's gaming careers. The argument is that Evermore, while a good game, was overshadowed by the sheer brilliance of Square's other efforts, and that if one were to look at Secret of Evermore as a standalone experience, gamers would find a lot to like. In the years following its release, Secret of Evermore would never receive any sort of official sequel or follow-up, though various fan-made patches would be created to help enhance the overall game experience, with the most influential one being an add-on that allows the game to have multiplayer similar to Secret of Mana. While I don't know that we'll ever see Square revisit Secret of Evermore in any official capacity, it is good to know that dedicated fans are still out there, making the experience even more fun for gamers who may be interested in the title. Suffice it to say, Secret of Evermore is a game that should be remembered, even if only for the unique place in which it sits in gaming history. As the first effort of the newly formed Squaresoft American branch of Square, the team succeeded in bringing a game to market that clearly showed its inspirations while at the same time forging its own path. Here's a game that represented the one and only time a square role-playing game would be designed and developed outside of Japan, a true Western RPG that would, somewhat surprisingly, never be localized for the Japanese market. It may not be as fondly remembered as many of Square's other console RPGs from the 90s, but it does deserve at least some recognition as an experimental endeavor that many individuals consider to be a quality 16-bit action RPG experience. are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play secret of evermore today versus when it was released almost 30 years ago before we begin though i need to confess something while i have played a number of rpgs of all sorts over my lifetime including a ton by square i have never played any game in the secret of mana series and i never played secret of evermore when i was younger so Playing Secret of Evermore for this episode is my first exposure to this particular style of action RPG, and I definitely have some thoughts. But first, let's go over a general overview of the game. Like we've talked about, Secret of Evermore is an action RPG, but from my perspective, it's actually a little bit of a hybrid between traditional console RPG and the more action-oriented gameplay that you might see in a title from the Legend of Zelda series. In Secret of Evermore, you play as a boy who has to navigate a number of different lands and dungeons accompanied by your faithful dog. Both you and your dog participate in battles, and you can switch back and forth between the two characters at will, except during certain portions of the story where you have to play as a single character to help progress the story. Most of the game consists of traditional RPG staples like exploring towns and talking with characters in the game world, completing miscellaneous quests that those characters ask you to tackle, navigating various dangerous areas and dungeons, and battling all sorts of monsters and foes along the way. The game itself is split up into several lands, each of which are distinct and exist as self-contained areas of the game, each with their own units of currency with specific exchange rates between them. You have a prehistoric area a land based on archaeology, a renaissance era kingdom, and finally a futuristic spaceship. As you explore these different areas, your dog companion will shift to various forms such as primeval beast, a poodle, and a toaster with legs who has a surprisingly effective laser attack by the way. Anyway, The act of battling monsters is a bit unique, in that rather than the traditional RPG mechanics of selecting actions from a menu, you have the ability to melee monsters in real time, simply by walking up to them and attacking. Both you and your dog can attack enemies, and there's a bit of rudimentary artificial intelligence that allows you to assign each character a certain level of aggression for when the computer is controlling that character. You can also micromanage battles a bit more by assigning your companion to attack a specific target, but that's really only useful in certain fights where you need to defeat a certain boss or piece of a boss and would rather focus your attention on that specific enemy as opposed to some of the weaker foes that might be part of the battle. Attacks are all governed by a quick-filling power bar located under your character. If the bar is at 100%, your attacks will have full power. If the bar isn't at 100%, your attacks will be decidedly less powerful. While you do have the ability to spam swing your weapon, doing so is entirely ineffective, as even weapons that would typically hit for over 70 points of damage with a regular full-powered swing will only hit for zero or one point of damage if spammed. And that is one of the reasons I say that this is a bit of a hybrid action RPG experience. Yes, you do have control over the act of attacking, but it's not like you can attack whenever you'd like unless you don't care about the effectiveness of your swings. Over the course of your adventure, you're going to find a variety of weapons that align with one of a few different broad categories. You have swords, axes, and spears, which are the primary weapon types in the game, and you also acquire a bazooka that can use different ammunition types, with each having different levels of damage associated with them. The interesting thing with the weapons is that beyond their base attacks, which are pretty much a traditional swing, each can be leveled up two times to unlock additional charged attacks. The way that works is you'd swing your weapon as normal, but then hold down your attack button as the weapon power meter begins to fill. Once the meter reaches 100%, it will continue to charge an additional bar as long as you keep holding down the attack button. Assuming you let that bar reach the top, you'll have charged up your first level of weapon attack. If you continue holding the button down, however, and you've leveled up your weapon for a second time, yet another bar will begin to fill, which is the charge meter for your most powerful weapon attack. Once that meter reaches full, you can then let go of the attack button and unleash the special attack specific to your weapon type, meaning that all spears share the same charged attacks, all axes share the same charged attacks, and all swords share the same charged attacks. The bazooka, by contrast, does not have the ability to charge since its power is driven primarily by its ammunition type, not necessarily how long you hold down the attack button. Now, as far as the types of attacks that you have available, for spears, you can charge them up one time, which will initiate a thrown spear attack. The second level of charge for spears is a more powerful version of that thrown spear attack, where now the spear can actually pass through multiple enemies. Axes are able to be charged up for one level to do a double attack, and then its second level of charge unleashes a whirlwind-style attack in an area of effect, and then swords can be charged up to initiate an attack where you kind of step forward and swing your weapon a couple of times, and then its second level of charge is an area effect set of swings that can hit multiple enemies. Your dog, by the way, also has his own unique attack, which is basically a biting kind of move. It can similarly level up and his charge attack can do pretty obscene damage, especially when the computer is controlling him, because the computer can most efficiently manipulate the charge meter to minimize the amount of time spent messing up and having to recharge your power meter. Beyond direct melee weapons, the game also has a magic system, which in this particular instance is based on the concept of alchemy. Throughout the game, you're going to find a number of different alchemy recipes, which can then be equipped on your character for use in the game. You can only have a certain number of alchemy recipes equipped at any point in time, and your ability to cast these alchemical spells is limited by the ingredients you have on hand. These ingredients can be found throughout the game world, either in chests, some of them can be purchased at merchants, and others can be sniffed out by your dog to pick up. Your dog can actually sniff around the environment that will then notify you to where there might be a spot that you can search and try to pick up and alchemical ingredient. And I say try because, boy, that that hit detection for those searches is a little wonky. Anyway, different recipes require different amounts of ingredients to cast, and some ingredients are only indigenous to specific lands in the games. There are some situations where you're going to be low on ingredients for certain recipes, and getting additional ingredients will not be a simple matter of going to the nearest merchant. So it's always prudent to stock up on materials as much as possible whenever the opportunity presents itself. Alchemy recipes run the gamut from traditional offensive spells like Fireball to restorative spells like Heal and Revive to buffs like Defense and Energize. There are a ton of recipes to be found, and each of them serves a different purpose. Similar to weapons, alchemy recipes can level up through use with a maximum level of 9 per spell. Grinding those levels out for certain commonly used spells like Heal can be really helpful, assuming you can find a ready supply of the required ingredients nearby. There's also a rudimentary equipment system included in the game with several different slots that you can equip with armor for the boy and a collar slot for your dog companion. More interesting than the equipment system is the charm system, which allows you to find various artifacts throughout the game world that can provide some sort of useful passive benefit, like increasing your attack or defense or making it so that spiders no longer attack you. There are a pretty good number of charms in the game, and every charm that you have in your inventory is always active. It's not like it's an equipment slot. You don't need to choose between better defense or higher attack. If you have the charm, you simply have the charm. All of those different mechanics come together into a game that, while more action oriented than a traditional RPG, still follows the same basic framework. You level up, you become more powerful, you get better equipment, and you eventually save the world. Before we move on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to read what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love taking a look at the back of the box for these games. It's just one of those things where I like to see how different companies market their materials, especially because around this time, you may not have necessarily known what a game was before you're actually standing in a computer or video game store about to make a decision on your purchase. It's not like we had YouTube back then to look up gameplay videos. You may have had magazines that would go into reviews about certain games, but really, a lot of our buying decision was based on what the box looked like. If the box looked cool, if there were some good text and things that made it sound interesting on the back of the box, we would often buy that game. So, for Secret of Evermore, the back of the box says, Discover the Secret of Evermore. In Dr. Sidney Ruffelberg's old decaying mansion, a boy and his dog stumble upon a mysterious machine. By sheer accident, they are propelled into Evermore, a one-time utopia that now has become a confounding and deadly world. A world of prehistoric jungles, ancient civilizations, medieval kingdoms, and futuristic cities. During his odyssey, the boy must master a variety of weapons, learn to harness the forces of alchemy, and make powerful allies to battle Evermore's diabolical monsters. What's more? His dog masters shape changing to aid the quest. But even if they can muster enough skill and courage, even if they can uncover the mysterious clues, they can only find their way home by discovering the secret of Evermore. And then there are some screenshots on the back of the box, as is fairly typical. So I would say that's actually a pretty good description of the game and is pretty intriguing from my perspective. Now, the interesting thing is that if you look at the back of the box and you look at the images, if you didn't know anything about Secret Ever- Evermore, you would think, oh, this is a square RPG, so it's going to play just like Final Fantasy. And You would be very wrong in that assumption. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the more specific aspects of the game, because I do want to talk about each in turn. So we're going to start by talking about the graphics. Secret of Evermore looked great. Almost all of the graphics in the game, from the environmental design to the characters to the monster design, and especially the bosses, which some of them are really large and detailed, even the user interface elements, all of them looked really good. Spells, similarly, were designed well, for the most part. Some of them, like Crush, have a satisfying feeling to use and graphics to match, with a hand basically coming out of the sky to smash your enemies, though there were some other spells, like Heal, which were pretty much just some colors enveloping your character, which did feel a little bit underwhelming. Animations overall were all well done, and there is a general smoothness to the gameplay that helps to sell the game as a more action-oriented RPG kind of title. Now, I do want to mention that I don't think the graphics are quite as good as some of Square's other RPGs like Chrono Trigger, which we actually did look at in a prior episode. But if I look at Secret of Evermore as a standalone experience, there's not much to complain about from the graphics. And like I said, even on the back of the box, the graphics made it look like a traditional Square RPG. So no real complaints there on the graphical front. Moving on to sound and music. This was Jeremy Soul's first video game soundtrack, and as his first... You might expect things to appear a little bit less skillfully arranged than what his later work would sound like, though from my perspective, that would actually be an entirely false expectation. Secret of Evermore actually has a pretty strong soundtrack, with music covering a variety of different styles that all fit in with the environments and encounters you're dealing with. Whenever the soundtrack has an opportunity to play actual musical compositions, it sounds great. Though I do have to mention that I wasn't quite as big of a fan of the more ambient sound kinds of tracks. There are some areas where when you walk around, all you hear are environmental sounds, like birds calling. And for me, I simply began to think, is the music not playing for some reason? Now listen, I'm totally on board with scenes that don't have music, either for a dramatic reason or because stylistically it just doesn't fit in with the scene. But with Secret of Evermore, the decision for when music plays versus when simple sound effects play just seems a little random. I'm sure the designers and Jeremy Soule had a reason behind why they did what they did. But from my perspective, I don't know that it worked in all instances. Now, it is a testament, though, to how much I enjoyed the music that I wished there was more of it. It's not like there's an issue with the tracks that were included. It's just that I wanted to hear of it in more times in the game. I wanted to hear more. It just wasn't there as much as I would have liked, at least not across every area of the game. Beyond the music, sound effects were fine. I mean, nothing really to talk about there. They existed, they sounded fine, but I don't think there's anything I'd single out as being particularly memorable, other than the fact that sound effects were sometimes used completely in lieu of music in certain scenes, like we were just talking about. Moving on to the narrative and story, the game begins with a short cutscene showing a laboratory experiment from 1965 that very obviously goes very wrong. Fast forward around 30 years and we arrive in the present time, at least as far as this game concerned, where a boy and his faithful pooch companion from Podunk USA are just leaving a movie theater after watching a cheesy B-movie classic, The Lost Adventures of Vex. On your way home from the theater, you come across a cat, and dogs being dogs, this sets off a chase with your pooch going after the kitty and eventually running into an old, dilapidated mansion. You go in to try to find your pet and stumble across some interesting-looking machinery. As you approach the machine, your puppy returns to the scene and begins chewing on some wires, which activates a portal to Evermore, an alternate dimensional land where the world itself is influenced by the thoughts and desires of those who live there. You set off on a journey to discover what's going on in Evermore with the hopes that by helping those who live there, you might eventually find your way home. Story-wise, this felt fine. Certainly not quite as epic as some other Square RPGs, but within the context of a more action-oriented game, it mostly works. Though I do want to call attention to a couple of specific areas where I thought that the game faltered just a bit. For one, and we've talked about this before. The game was intended to be a more westernized version of a console RPG, with various references and humor designed to appeal more to a western audience. The thing is, the attempts at humor in the game just don't always work. There were a couple moments where I thought, okay, that was kind of funny. But for the most part, a lot of the humor was almost a caricature rather than being actually funny. As an example, the boy being from Podunk, USA. Come on, really? I mean, I felt like the designer could do better. I just, it just didn't feel like it was truly humorous. And the designers do, in fact, do better at different points in the story. I especially like the various references to the different fake B-movies that the boy mentions throughout the game, and there are some conversations that are somewhat comical, most often in the way they go totally over the top beyond what you'd expect, like this one scene where you're exploring one of the lands in the game, there's a guard in front of a special statue that's going to go through a literal laundry list of restrictions, some of which are absolutely crazy. I also enjoyed the various forms that your dog companion would take in the different lands, with Toaster Puppy probably being my favorite. Beyond the humor, the overall story itself was simply a bit more linear than I would have liked. There weren't really any side quests to allow someone to learn more about the lore of the world. You were pretty much on a singular quest with a singular goal. And while you'd sometimes have to complete a number of subtasks in order to progress in the game, there really wasn't anything off the beaten path for you to discover, at least in terms of story and world building. This might just be an expectation thing given Square's pedigree, but it is something that I noticed otherwise it's not like the story is bad it's just that i feel like it could have been better moving on to the playability and controls generally speaking this controls pretty much as you would expect with movement being handled by your d-pad and various actions being mapped to your controller buttons you can swing your weapon you can bring up the game's ring menu system for either you or your dog companion or you can run once you unlock the charm that enables the capability As you navigate the game's world, you can talk to various characters, interact with various objects, and open various chests, acquiring equipment and materials along the way. So those core set of controls work absolutely fine, and there is nothing mechanically wrong with controlling your character or the game. That being said, there are a number of personal issues I had with how these controls and the various game systems combine to create an experience that is more problematic than it should be. So let's start by talking about the combat, which is a huge chunk of the game. It simply isn't particularly fun. Now, this might be a stylistic preference, but when I think action RPG, I assume the game is going to actually have fast-paced gameplay. Secret of Evermore is definitely faster paced than a traditional square RPG, but the inclusion of the power gauge and the insane degree to which it influences damage makes the game feel slower paced than it should. If your weapon meter isn't at 100%, It's barely worth it to swing your weapon, unless you want to try to knock an enemy away from you to buy yourself a breather. But then you have to wait for the power meter to refill before you can become effective again, which only serves to prolong fights. And fights will sometimes take a while, because the hit detection in the game is simply broken in a lot of instances, or at least it feels broken to me. You go to swing at your enemy, and you miss. Then you walk up to your enemy and swing again. And you miss again, despite standing right next to the enemy. And it's not like it's a normal in-game miss where your stats prevent you from hitting the enemy. Because if that happens, it's accompanied by the word missed appearing on the screen. So, okay, cool. That means that the game calculated my swing and it said... Nope, you didn't pass the roll or whatever the mechanic is in order to hit your enemy. No, in these instances, the misses I'm talking about are all situations where your weapon simply swings through the air and effectively passes through the enemy standing right next to you with no indication that the game ever realized that you were trying to hit an enemy. This is particularly awful early in the game when fighting smaller creatures, but it is a pervasive issue throughout. Which brings me to another gripe. Because you can't be guaranteed to hit an enemy with traditional melee, you end up relying almost exclusively on charged weapon attacks. Which is fine, except doing so extends fights even longer because of the charge time required for your weapon. Oh, and by the way, getting hit by enemies, especially bosses, tends to hurt quite a bit, so approaching melee range to get off an attack is sometimes not the wisest option. Which means it's often best to use ranged attacks as opposed to -to face-to-face combat. And that means that you're pretty much stuck with using a spear for most of the game, since that's the only base weapon that allows for any degree of ranged attack through the use of its charged maneuvers. And then that means that you're using the same exact attacks for the entire game, because it's not like different weapons of each type have alternate charged attacks. If you're using a spear, it will always have the same charged attack. The weapon itself might be more powerful and different, but the types of attacks don't change that means it can get a bit dull, especially considering the relative ineffectiveness of other weapon types, at least based on my experience. So, let's go through this. Your weapon in melee range is oftentimes completely useless, but in order to get your weapon to the point of actually being usable, meaning leveled up so you can actually charge your attacks, you have to use it to kill monsters. Not just hit them, you have to deliver the killing blow, which is difficult when nearly every swing is a miss. So you end up going to the easiest possible area you can, grinding out a couple hundred kills on random trash mobs until you can get to the point of actually being able to play the game again. So you might say, okay, melee isn't great. Let's just use alchemy. And you know what? That's actually a great idea because alchemy can be totally overpowered. The thing is, when you first get a new recipe, it's so woefully Underpowered that you have to pretty much go through the same rigmarole as you do with weapons. You find some easy mobs, you use your recipe a bunch, and you level it up until it becomes effective. And the issue here is that you need ingredients in order to cast those alchemy spells, and those ingredients are in short supply. So the only real way to grind alchemy levels is to find an alchemy merchant with ingredients that map to the spells you want to level up. You go buy a bunch of those ingredients, you go out and cast the spell a bunch, and then go back to replenish your inventory. Now listen. I am not opposed to grinding in games, and I think the act of gaining levels to become more powerful is actually a very addictive gameplay loop. But in this game, the sheer number of interacting gameplay mechanics, along with some irritating game design, makes it so that it feels like in order to be at all effective, you need to grind. It's not an optional, I'm having difficulty with this one boss so I need to get stronger kind of thing. It's I want to play the game, so I need to grind three different things to simply be effective. It all detracts from the pace of the gameplay, and I am not a fan. Now this is exacerbated even more by certain encounters that almost require you to have leveled up certain skills, otherwise you'll literally be unable to continue. This is particularly egregious at one particularly tough late boss in the game, where it is impossible to hit them without using ranged attacks. If you're not a spear user and you haven't leveled your offensive alchemy, just die. (laughs) You just have to go die, go grind, and come back later. Now, even here, this isn't one of those go-get-stronger kinds of situations. It's not like you even have an option. If you don't have ranged attacks available, you simply cannot progress. So, the act of combat, from my perspective, just isn't great. Luckily, your computer-controlled companion is a much better fighter than you, and that'll help you progress throughout the game. But I really hated having to rely on my companion. They should be a complement rather than the thing carrying you, which is especially prevalent early in the game where your dog is just overpowered and you are a weakling by comparison. All that being said, I do think there's some goodness here. The ring menu system, stolen directly from Secret of Mana, is an innovative way to manage your inventory, spells, and pretty much all that stuff. I know some people have said it's unintuitive, especially because you need to manage two characters, but I got used to it pretty quickly, and it definitely provided a more streamlined experience in comparison to the traditional several menus deep interface that many RPGs of the time employed. I also liked the concept of weapon and alchemy spell leveling and the use of alchemical recipes versus the traditional spell magic point systems that many games use. I thought it was interesting. I just didn't like the execution. I felt like the execution was off. So bottom line, the game controls fine, but certain aspects of the game's design prevent those controls from being usable as effectively as they should. So as far as playability, beyond the control, hit detection, and game design issues I've discussed previously... There is one other area where I think the designers really faltered, and that is in the design of many of the dungeons included throughout the game. Now, this might just be me, but when I navigate a dungeon, I want an experience where it feels like a labyrinth. I don't want a single path forward, but I also don't want to feel like I have no clue where I'm going. It's a tricky balancing act, but when a game gets it right you feel like a true adventurer exploring hidden catacombs, where your wit and observation skills allow you to succeed in the face of adversity. For Secret of Evermore, I'm just going to say one word. Mazes. Nearly every single dungeon and even a bunch of overworld locations are designed as mazes. Not just, oh, there's an extra path here, I wonder where it goes. It's more like, I'm going to go to the bookstore and pick up a puzzle magazine full of mazes kind of thing. The sheer number of maze-like designs included in the game borders on the comical. It got to the point where as soon as I'd enter a new fighting zone, I'd think, oh great, maze. Sometimes I even thought, amazing, but puns don't work nearly well when you're simply thinking about them versus saying them out loud. So I'll simply leave you with this. Secret of Evermore and its dungeon design is simply amazing. Get it? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But seriously, this game has a ton of confusing maze environments, and there's only one that I'm aware of, which, by the way, is the worst maze in the game by far, involving a forest late in the game, that actually telegraphs a potential solution. Yeah, that forest might be one of the most godforsaken mazes ever put into a game, but it does, in fact, show you a solution if you pay attention closely. The fact that it drags on for minutes before you get any indicator that the clue that you think you saw was, in fact, a clue... Is a little bit of an issue but at least the game gives you some indicator that you might possibly be on the right path and by the way for those who may be wondering the seventh guest's maze is probably the worst maze i've ever experienced in a game i'm sure there are worse but that one has stuck with me over the years speaking of not knowing you're on the right path i want to briefly talk about the desert found in the second land you encounter in the game the first time i got there I walked around for what felt like 10 minutes with what felt like almost identical sand dunes in all directions. I legitimately thought the game was broken. Once I realized that I simply had to walk in a single specific direction for an extended period of time, it did get better. And on one hand, I can commend the designers for adding a zone into the game that correctly captures what it must feel like to walk across the Sahara, which is to say, tedious and not fun. On the other hand, though, I simply hated the area, and as soon as I was able to acquire an item that let me effectively skip that zone, I did so. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I have a serious love-hate relationship going on with Secret of Evermore. For large portions of the game, I kept wondering, why? Why did they design this part like this? Why is the melee combat so unsatisfying? Why am I in yet another maze? But then there are other portions where I think, oh, that's pretty cool or "Ooh, interesting fight or hey, that music is really evocative. And then I get pulled into the game again and I want to play more, only to be disappointed again as soon as I hit the next dungeon maze and think, is it really worth it? Secret of Evermore makes me feel bipolar because I do think there's a lot of good here, but I also think there are a lot of issues. Like I said earlier, I never played Secret of Mana, so I don't know if this is simply a game's overall style and mechanics not jiving with my own personal preferences. I'm kind of curious because from my perspective, the fact that many gamers hold Secret of Evermore in such high regard is a little baffling. Would that same negative feeling apply to Secret of Mana? I honestly don't know. So what is our verdict? Where does Secret of Evermore sit? Did it make it into the pantheon of classic gaming? Well, I want to start by saying, Secret of Evermore has a pretty strong following nowadays, with many people praising its virtues, and some even going so far as to say it's one of the best games of all time. I'm here to tell you that for me, that simply doesn't hold true. I do think there's something here, something that's almost charming, and I can see a world where I like this game more than I do. The graphics and sound in particular are high quality, and it is definitely a game that looks the part. When I look at how it feels to actually play the game, however, I'm left wanting more, and I think individuals who don't have any particular nostalgia for the title might feel the same way. For those reasons, Secret of Evermore is one of our mediocre mentions. It's got some good stuff going for it, but if it isn't all that fun to play, does it really matter? I really wish I enjoyed it more than I did, because Secret of Mana has long been on my list of games to play but now I'm fearful that I'm going to have the same kind of reaction, and part of me thinks it'd be better to let my imagination believe it's a classic versus potentially being proven otherwise. I'll probably play it at some point, despite how I feel about Secret of Evermore. Your mileage may vary here, and I fully recognize this might just be a personal preference. But from my perspective, I don't see a need for anyone to really play Secret of Evermore, unless you have a deep curiosity about the game. It's not totally without merit, but with so many other options available, I cannot recommend anyone seek out this particular piece of mediocrity. Was our episode on Secret of Evermore. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide comments, feedback, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you could reach out. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if anybody feels inclined to reach out, have a discussion, I am more than interested in hearing what you all think. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure game Blade Runner, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this on any number of podcast engines, and it would be great if you wouldn't mind to leave a review on your podcast engine of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts or gathering a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is gathering the feedback needed to make sure this is the best possible podcast I can create. The only way to do that is to get feedback from the community. We are getting brand new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to make sure we're continuing to hit the mark and that this is the podcast that everybody wants to listen to and really does enjoy. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Blade Runner. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.